0: Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, as has been the case for the last few weeks, uh, we still have to do recordings for the program, so we won't be able to take phone calls. But I hope to provide you some good information in any regard, and we'll try to just guess at what it is you needed to know about. So let's start with yesterday. We closed yesterday uh, with the Dow at 24,242. That was up 704 points. That's about 3%. The S&P higher at 2874. The NASDAQ up at 8650. The gold price uh, dropped down sixty dollars this week. It ended uh, the week at sixteen eighty nine. Silver at fifteen eleven announced, ounce. U.S. crude, speaking of all over the place, with, at twenty five fourteen a barrel. Ten-year Treasury at zero point six four percent, and soft white wheat bid at six ten a bushel. You know, through uh, yesterday, uh, the major averages are now up over. Uh, let's see. The Dow is up 33%, the S&P up 31 and the NASDAQ 30 from their late March lows. So we've had a pretty good jump in a very short period of time. And one of the reasons, two reasons the markets did well yesterday, one was Boeing, uh, which said they're going to start making airplanes again uh, as early as next week, the stock up about 15% as a result of that. And then there's a company called Gilead Sciences, which came out with some sort of treatment uh, solution that could help uh, with the virus and that had a broad mm, positive response the stock was up just about 10 percent in response to that news now there's been some talk of checks being issued to folks this week and if you haven't got yours yet i got a e- excuse not an email what is this thing called website where you can check it out and see just where did it go, where did it go uh and here's here's the website okay IRS.gov/coronavirus C O R O N A V I R U S one word slash get dash my dash payment. Now you go to there and you all will be revealed after you put in a little uh, personal information. Now, folks are eligible for twelve hundred dollar checks, twenty four hundred for joint filers, but there are some criteria. Uh, if you earn less than seventy-five thousand as a single person, you'll get the full amount. Uh, but if up to ninety-nine thousand, you will get some money. But there'd be no money for you after ninety-nine thousand again as a single filing person. For uh, couples, the hundred and fifty is where maximum joint income, you would get uh, the full uh, $2,400. Uh, your cutoff is basically twice what it is for a single person at $198,000, where you would no longer qualify for money. But again, if you're in between, there would be a pro-rated. And if you're a head of household filer, your max is $112,000. And for folks uh, with kids under 17, you'll also get an additional $500 per child. But dependents who are 17 or older don't qualify, even if they're still in school. And if they don't file their own taxes, they can't get their own checks. So uh, just kind of be aware of that little catch, I guess you could call it. Now, you know, we've had a lot of (laughs) strange and unusual uh, economic reports. And yet, as I've just described to you, the markets have been doing pretty well. Well, the stock market by nature is forward looking. So it's going to move first. Economic reports are the other way around. They are backward-looking. They're history. It's what happened already. And that's why it's only now that we're officially learning what is unemployment, what is uh, retail sales, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. The mismatch between the focus of the market and that of the economic reports also explains why we're going up. You know, while we see the world for what it is, the market tends to see the world for what it might become. Stocks generally look about three to 30 months ahead and they discount widely known, widely known information, which would include economic forecasts. So the stock market doesn't care that folks are getting fired today or they got fired last week. What they're thinking about, that is to say, the market is how many might get fired next week, next month or even next year. If you expect 100,000 people to get fired Uh, the market may drop as a result of that. If uh, only 50,000 do, well, hey, you know, too bad for the 50,000, of course, but uh, that was better than expected, the key phrase always, and so the market would likely come up. So just kind of keep those in mind. Don't read too much into the daily moves of the marketplace. Uh, Short-termism will always kill your portfolio. Now, market drop size is always going to be less significant than, Its duration, as in how long will it last? You know, is it going to be just short term or is it going to be a longer downturn? And even with record monthly declines in economic activity, if their duration is short, the resumption in that activity can generate big leaps in growth, especially if we're coming off a low base. And this outcome has strong potential if businesses can pick up where they left off after the lockdown ends. You know, bad results may hit our sentiment in the short term, but those Near-term hits, usually even out as stocks shift their focus to the longer term. Stocks have lately been, I would say, overly focused on the shorter term, and which makes the likelihood of some major negative surprise in the near term rather low because uh, the news is known, as they say, it's in the market. But as uncertainty falls, it'll never go away. But possibilities narrow and likely outcomes become clearer. The stock's focus in general should shift toward the longer term, and that's where we uh, think you all should be focusing right now as well. Now, since the low, as I said a minute ago, the stock market has had a pretty impressive run. We've done okay uh, with uh, the S&P having gained again more than, uh, was it, 31% in 19 trading sessions. And again, yeah, it was down a lot, but it's coming back. And last week was the second best week for the Dow in 80 years. The best week came two weeks before. And this past week, we saw big names like Walmart, Amazon, Netflix. They all made new all-time highs. And it's probably not a coincidence that they are benefiting from the fact that we're all in jail. You know, these guys are benefiting from that. Now, as a, a... an aside, I guess you could call it, Uh, partly because of the global recession and partly because of the central bank responses, we've seen both short and long-term interest rates falling to historically low levels, making uh, long-term returns from bonds of most types very unappealing. As a matter of fact, as of yesterday, the yield on the 10-year Treasury was just 0.64%. You know, for example, if... uh, and again, the uh, S&P is down, let me see here, 15% from its high. So what would happen is, is if we see the market start moving again and start recovering, <laughs> partly because of the global recession, partly because of central bank responses, both short and long-term interest rates have fallen to historically low levels. And that makes prospective long-term returns from bonds of most types quite unappealing. As of yesterday, the yield on the 10-year was just about 0.64%. Putting that in perspective, the S&P is now down 11% from its peak of, of what, two months ago, and uh, has a dividend yield of 2.3%. So, for example, if it took 10 years from today for the market to get back to that peak, The dividend yield on stocks averaged just 2% over that period. The average total return on the S&P would be 4%, more than five times what you could earn on a treasury. Now, bondholders might also be the biggest monetary losers over these next few years because they'll be funding many trillions of dollars of stimulus at historically low interest rates. Now, if, well, when the economy recovers... Interest rates are bound to rise, if only because right now they're well below the current rate of inflation. Again, 10-year at 064 inflation at 2.3%. But with so much money being dumped in the economy, it's going to be pretty hard for the Fed to take it out when things improve and the demand for money returns to normal. So that could create an excess supply of money, which would also create rising inflation. So we should focus on what will benefit from a steady to higher inflation, commodities, real estate, uh, energy, uh, those kinds of things. And uh, the losers, of course, will be the things negatively affected by rising interest rates. Right now, uh, I want to hit a couple things about the economy uh, that I think need to be explained a little bit. Well, first, uh, just talk on retail sales. Uh, they decreased 8.7% in March from a month ago, uh, one You know, here's the kind of reports we've been getting. Largest one-month decline since they began tracking the series in 1992. Well, duh. I mean, you know, when when you have the governors and the mayors saying, hey, you can't work, you can't do anything, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, you know, these are like, uh, that's why these reports are like, uh, well, yeah, they're bad, but they're not induced by the overall economy. It's by what's called Fiat, F-I-A-T, not the little car, but it's a... uh, by direction of the government. So the, the global economic hit it will likely be four times worse than the financial crisis. And we will see our highest unemployment rate since World War II. Now, this is from our buddies at Goldman Sachs. Now, they say with most of the developing economies on near-total shutdown, trying to stop the virus, they see, they Goldman, see second quarter GDP decline of 11% from a year ago uh, on an annualized basis. So in the U.S., they say, the headline unemployment rate could hit 15%. And and I'm quoting, even this understates the severity of the situation, as many uh, workers will be sidelined and not looking for jobs amid an anticipated reopening of the economy. And so... uh, (laughs) Both numbers considerably worse than anything we saw in 2008. Once again, it's, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, here's these things all should have asterisks with them, you know? I mean, like um, (laughs) unusual, outlier, out-of-market. That's why I can't put too much emphasis on the effect. I mean, well, not the effect, but the reports themselves, because... They're being somewhat artificially generated, and again, because of outside forces saying, don't do anything. It wasn't the economy itself grinding to a halt. Now, another 5.2 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. So we've got 22 million folks uh, on unemployment right now. Uh, Now, the good news is, if there is such a thing, last week, or this past week, we had fewer folks filing for unemployment than they did the week before. Now, of course, we'll see this coming Thursday if that's still going to be the case, but hopefully that's the trend. Now, workers getting benefits uh, from unemployment uh, jumped all the way up from 1.2% to 8.2%, and the highest in the previous 50 years was 7%. So, you know, at the end of 81-82, we had a recession, and it was 5.4%. In uh, 7 09, it was 5%. So, you know, again, it's, it's a much broader effect. That's why it's more people. It's not that it's necessarily that much more um, negative, per se, now, labor market indicators such as jobless claims, payrolls, they're some of the most widely watched data points on Wall Street because they're considered forward-looking. Now, they also tend to result from economic trends. They do not, do not cause them. So if you're inclined to be bearish in response to this labor market deterioration, sit down and you know t- take a pause and say, i do you really know something that other investors don't? No, as for the many financial media commentators asking where a recovery could possibly come from with millions of people out of work and cutting discretionary spending, well, they should know that this situation is often the case when a bear market and economic recession end. But they don't because most of them, let's just say, aren't overly qualified for their jobs investors who remember the early days of the bull market and economic expansion may recall loads of jobless recovery headlines. You remember those things? That's what we were going to have. And that theme is common in early bull markets. Stocks usually resume rising first because they anticipate better days to come. And as signs emerge that things aren't quite as bad as the end of the world that uh, many were proposing, well, then economic indicators turn. The catalyst for this usually isn't consumer spending because, believe it or not, it tends to be more stable in a recession than many think because, well, you may not be out spending on frivolous stuff, but you are still going to be spending on necessary goods and services. So the turnaround usually comes from businesses. that, When they have a resumed willingness to take risk and invest, that helps jumpstart demand and creates the uh, the need to add wor- workers to payrolls. Now, in the current version, consumer spending likely falls much further than usual since so much of it is being hindered by these government-induced shutdowns. That argues for a quick rebound for many of those workers who haven't suffered layoffs or pay cuts to return to normal spending activity once these stores and non-essential services reopen. Most of the jobless claims filed these past four weeks were for temporary unemployment. That's one of the things I'm talking about. This is not a, uh, a wholesale turn. This is, you know, it's just, we have to be closed because these guys said we had to be closed, not because our business is bad. Now people furloughed without pay while their stores uh, and offices were forced, excuse me, were forced to, jeepers, forced to close. Now, if the current disruptions end soon, many of those people are likely going to return to work and resume earning quickly. Now, it may make sense that a recovery can't develop with so many people unemployed. Almost every recovery begins with a high unemployment rate. Stocks don't require an all-clear flag to rise. Usually, all they need are improvements relative to present expectations. You don't wait for all the lights to turn green before you go out of your driveway in the morning, do you? I mean, this is the way, kind of the way the markets work. Now, there's a potential problem that uh, some economists have put forward is that the boost to unemployment benefits enacted by Congress is overkill for many workers, leading to what uh, they choose to call perverse incentives. For example, a a worker in California earning $46,700 a year where that came from, I don't know. I'm just reading the example. But normally a layoff would give them six months of unemployment benefits at a rate of four fifty a week, which is about twenty three five, about half what they had been earning when they worked. But now Congress is throwing an extra six hundred per week for the unemployed workers for four months. That means four months these workers will be getting $1,050 per week which translates into an annual benefit of 54.6, which is more than they were murky, may, earning when they were working. I don't think that was the plan, but that's the way it worked out. So that's my thought on employment. So again, it's 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 a mirror, not mirror. I don't mean to dis- make it sound so light, but it is not a substantive issue. Let's talk about oil. Now last week... Last weekend, 23 countries committed to collectively take uh, almost 10 million barrels a day of oil from global markets. It was supposed to address mounting oil glut resulting from this erosion of demand and seeks to withhold a record amount of crude from the markets. But (coughs) the argument is the agreement is too little too late to avoid breaching storage capacity ensuring that oil prices force all producers to contribute to the market rebalancing. Now, this is from an oil analyst at Citigroup. His name's Ed Morse. He says it's simply too late to prevent a super large inventory build of over a billion barrels between March and late May and to keep the oil from falling into single-digit prices. Now, we are at uh, multiple-year lows. Uh, it did drop to 2011 a barrel on Wednesday. You know, it's down about 68% since January. That's just nuts. It per, below the break-even level for many producers. So expect weakness in the in the sector going forward. You know, the crude oil market got hit from both sides. The global disruptions, you got the Saudis and the Russians trying to kill the, uh, the shale guys here in the U.S. Anyway, uh, I don't think we're going back to whale oil and candles anytime, folks. So, uh, you know, you just got to, duck through it. And I think that the energy companies, the good energy companies are going to come through this in fine style and uh, stand you in good stead at some point. You know, uh, one of the things that gets brought up, well, at least to us uh, a lot in uh, with this, all these checks and stuff, you know, uh, is that it's about the buildup of debt. And you say, oh man, is it "Put look at all the debt that's getting put out there. Well, how do you pay Repay government debt. You know, you don't pay it off. I mean, that's the bottom line. You grow your way out of it. And that doesn't make sense to most folks because (laughs) it doesn't apply to us. I mean, as normal humans, because when a person takes out a mortgage or a car loan or whatever kind of loan, there's a repayment date. But that's only because people have finite careers and lifespans, you know. So there's an end date when all debts have to be repaid countries and to some lesser extent companies are different because they have indefinite lives. So they can remain indebted indefinitely even with rising debt. So as long as nominal GDP growth is higher than the annual budget deficit, our debt to GDP goes down and spending more than you take leaves you with a lower debt burden. I know it doesn't, but it's so simple, but it's easily overlooked because it doesn't apply, again, to people. What matters for countries isn't the amount of debt they hold. It's how burdensome that debt is to maintain over time. Now, when we have low interest rates, it certainly takes a lot of the pressure off. um, And that has a lot to do with being able to maintain it. But what matters for countries isn't the amount of debt. And again, it's how much... how much of a hassle it is to maintain it. The burden of our debt, which is interest payments as a share of GDP, it's been in a pretty tight range, believe it or not, since the end of World War II. Uh, It wasn't much different in 1950, and uh, that's when the debt was near its peak, than in 1940, which was where the war began. It's about the same level today, 80 years later. So a lot of things globally and demographically happened after the war that gave tailwind to growth. and some of those forces have now become headwind so there are now many questions will interest rates stay low i hope not will we avoid another catastrophe that requires trillions of new debt definitely hope not there but how much growing out of our debt will be inflation versus real growth well i certainly don't know the answers and i don't think anybody does but when people say we're leaving this debt to our kids and grandkids to repay we well probably not this isn't a mortgage that has to be paid in full by a specific date. Without repaying a cent of the debt, its burden could be easily less than another generation than it is today. Now, we're all guessing, but my best guess is that sometime in the next few years, we're going to have a big tax increase, regardless of who's president. Uh, and spending will come down from current levels, will stay higher than it was before, What's been going on is enhanced unemployment benefits uh, may become permanent depending upon political pressures, and uh, debt will never actually decline. It's going to rise every year. But, you know, this innovation that comes from as a result of what we're having to go through now hopefully will spark enough eventual prosperity to help us maintain or grow our way out of debt as we have in the past. So that's debt. Now, just kind of some thoughts in general, you know, in the months ahead, the timing and pace of the recovery is likely largely going to be influenced by the, the timing and pace of governments at all levels actually finally restricting, easing restrictions on economic activity. This, in turn, depends on the spread of the bug and as well as testing and therapies to fight it. Now, there's a lot of people starting to push back against being uh, how might I say cooped up by uh, arbitrary uh, rules and re- and regulations so we'll see just how much longer this is going to continue now it isn't to say that the bear market is over or stocks can't fall more you know short term swings and market cycle turning points are definitely unpredictable but the driver for any future major drawdown is much likelier to be future deterioration in the economic outlook relative to what is expected today not the backward looking surge of jobless claims or any other of those reports we were talking about earlier. Now, many investors are loss averse. We know this to be true. It means that they're distinctly much more sensitive to losses than to gains. And this aversion is likely more of a challenge in today's environment. I think that's safe to say. This loss aversion may also stem from an aversion to ambiguity ambiguity you know it's when you're not it isn't nothing certain an ambiguity averse individual would rather choose an alternative where outcomes are known over one where the probabilities are unknown and i'd say that the current situation does not lend itself to where to you ha- to where you have predictable outcomes we've never had an economic situation like this. We've also never seen the speed and breadth of a policy response on both the fiscal and monetary side. In the past three weeks, as we said earlier, you know, we've seen uh, the second worst work in the S&P 500 since World War II and the best week since 1974. What the heck? I mean. You know, usually see them in close proximity, that's for sure. I would guess for many investors that those losses felt much worse than the gains that came a little bit later. You know, And this loss aversion has also led investors to hold on to poor investments way too long and sell winners way too early. See, if you have a, a bad investment and you're in a taxable account, not a retirement account, but in a taxable account, you may say, hey, I want to sell this and take a tax loss to help me reduce uh, my my tax bill on this uh, account at the end of the year. And it, if you do declare a loss, thirty one days later, if you still like it, you can buy it back, and the meter starts all over again. So, but even if it is a, 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 a non excuse me, a qualified account, a retirement account, there's no reason to keep bad things in there. You know, be real steely-eyed, not just because the price is down, but see if there's fundamental changes that would cause you to make a change. Uh, you know, some investors might be feeling that these paper losses in their portfolio much too acutely, and they allow their aversion to additional losses, keeping from adding to into positions when we have periods like this of price weakness. You know, investors always talk to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to invest when the market's down. Uh, let me assure you that that doesn't happen quite as regularly as mm, perhaps they say it will. I'm sure their hearts are in the right place, but it's, <laughs> it's a tough thing to do when everybody else is telling you, oh, no, you know, be careful, etc., etc. But check your loss aversion, because time makes money doesn't it? So if you have money invested and you let it alone and you don't try and emotionally get in your own way, you'll probably do pretty dang good. Now, we've got the earnings season finally kicking off in earnest. So there's going to be some really underwhelming numbers here, I think, uh, before the uh, before it's all over. But uh, keep two things in mind. As we said earlier, stocks have been laser focused on this and are highly unlikely to be surprised by the bad news. Two, just getting the numbers is going to reduce uncertainty a bit and help investors and analysts get more, I don't know, educated expectations for the second quarter and beyond. And this this is obviously the uh, gilding the lily here. But never before have we endured such a widespread shutdown of our private economy. This unprecedented nature of this self-induced shutdown makes analyst models mostly guesswork, and your own as well. I would add, uh, but. Getting first quarter results will give them a baseline to recalibrate with actual numbers to kind of say, well, how are we do it? And that helps them assess how numbers might evolve from here. Companies earnings guidance is really only one input to the market's expectations anyway, and it's not exactly an airtight production. It's a fine thing to be sure, but markets are much more than capable of formulating their own conclusions without the guidance of our propeller head analyst, uh, back in New York and other places such as that there. Now, the news we see is both good and bad, but negativity bias makes it easy for many investors to focus and worry about the bad news. For those investors, this can often lead to the urge to panic. And Despite the fact that markets have rebounded significantly since 2008, negative events and headlines continue to have an undue influence on investment decisions and desire for safer investments. You know, to what degree the market's going to recover and by how much, well, who knows. But looking out over the long-term horizon, it seems clear that the economy is going to recover and growth will resume. So don't be selling. You know, cash is basically paying nothing, and most bonds ensure you're going to lose significant purchasing power to inflation for years to come. Stocks, distressed debt, commodities, real estate, Yes, energy, only sensible asset classes at this point because they give exposure to rising inflation and or a growing economy. If you think that the market and every stock within it should trade with the short-term state of economic affairs, well, that's, well, it's just naïve. If you know anything about stock valuations, then you know that the value of a company, and therefore its stock, is based on the sum of all the company's future cash flows it will generate for shareholders many years into the future. And then that's discounted back to the present by a discount rate that accounts for uncertainty and risk. So that's exactly why a stock's value, and by extension an index like the S&P, is said to be forward-looking. Obvious short term events that reduce a company's cash flows or earnings do matter, but not nearly as much as in the long term as cash flow generation potential of the underlying business. See, as a stockholder, you own the business, you own a pro rata share of a real business. Now, we know that economic sh- shutdowns are severe, but should also be relatively short in nature investors have to consider what the surviving companies will learn when things return to a level of normalcy. Now, that's one important factor that can create divergences between the current state of the economy and stock prices. Second, many people measure the performance of the market through the performance of indexes like the S&P and the NASDAQ and the Dow. But it's crucial to know that the large, well-capped tech companies such as Amazon, Apple, Google, Google/Alphabet, Microsoft and Facebook currently represent a disproportionately large share of the value of those stock indexes. These large giants have net cash on their balance sheets to weather this storm, and some of them such as Amazon and Microsoft are even seeing an increase in their businesses during this tough economic environment. Now, these businesses were going faster than the average business prior to the economic shock as well. Now, many individual stocks, particularly in those affected sectors, such as retail, airlines, hotel, energy, and banking, those guys can still be down almost 50% from where they were uh, prior to the sell-off. Now, does that mean they're bad companies? Not necessarily. That's why you have to look at the fundamentals of each one in order to make an informed decision. Now, it's also likely we're going to see some correction or choppiness in the next couple months as earnings reports and the economic data give investors a better picture of the economic situation and recovery speed. You know, the longer timeframes provide you an important perspective. Now, there's also been talk, you know, we talked about a minute ago, there's also talk about this bailout stuff. Well, in the vast majority of cases where the government has provided assistance to distressed companies and industries in the past, The form of that aid has been through loans or senior preferred stock that is paid back with interest. The government made out like a bandito in the 2008 and 2009 deal when they were uh, subsidizing some insurance companies and what have you. Not only did they make out on the uh, preferreds that they issued, they got paid back on the uh, initial uh, bailout loans as well. The rescue financing packages usually come with significant stipulations for how the money can be used, as well as restrictions on the company's ability to pay dividends and executive compensation. And as I said, the government actually generated a net profit on all the financing rescue financing problems they had in 08 and 09 Now I think that in in closing today, let's see how much time we got. Yeah, it should work. Um Attitude. I'm all about attitude. And to me, attitude is uh, the key to your success in in investing. Because panic and fear are natural consequences of this virus junk. And the media seem to love to continue to feed us throughout this in, in, emotional tsunami. I look at the news on TV and tell me a story that doesn't have a virus hook in it. I mean, these guys got nothing else to say. And, and so it just reinforces, you know, it, <laughs> the facts tend to get lost in the emotions. Fear can be used uh, as a, a guide to steer you away from unnecessary risk. Yeah, you know, the old tiger, you don't want to get turned into a snack item for him. But on the other hand, when it's just unconstrained and just broad, <sighs> well, it's very frustrating to me. But as it is today, it usually leads to panic. And in the investing universe, that is a definite recipe for disaster. The the antidote is the reasonable hope that provides you, quote, the wisdom to take reasonable risks and the power to persist in adversity. So you got three things. You got perspective, patience, and good strategies, right? So perspective. During the times of scary markets, long term, there's only going to be two outcomes. One No light at the end of the tunnel. World comes to an end. That's it. End of story. Don't matter anyway. Two, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It is not the super chief. The world will not come to an end. And eventually, the world economy and markets will recover. Let us go back in the wayback machine for examples thereof. The bear market of 73 and 75. Yes, we did have bad markets before 08 and 09, folks. Between 74 and 75, the market was down 49%. Black Monday, the one-day sale in October 19, 1987. They call it a sudden, severe stock market crash. Well, yeah, it was down 22.6% in one day. That's a lot. The 1990 recession. Stocks trended higher in the eight years prior and peaked two weeks after the recession began. Early in that recession, stocks declined, lost 26% before bottoming out. So patience. We're living in a strange time now. Oh, baby. I talk about. <laughs> I expect the Twilight Zone music to be playing in the background all the time. You know, minute-by-minute minute news flashes on the growing number of new cases and related deaths, new stay-at-home orders makes you crazy. The markets reflect this reality with, I think accurately, schizophrenic volatility. This reality also makes it mighty hard for some not to be tempted to bail out. Our very strong recommendation is... Don't do it. I know you've heard it before, but it's true. Centuries of experience demonstrate that those who bail fail. Those who stay succeed. Now, that begs the question. Why not just step aside for a bit? Simply get back in when the world gets its head together again. They call that market timing. Okay, quick question. Who are the 10 best market timers ever? Quiet out there, isn't it? Yeah. How about top five? top three. Who's the best one? Well, there isn't any. Because in 100 years of market history, no one, no one has yet to find the secret to this. Besides, if anyone really could consistently market time, I'm sure they'd be sitting up on a mountaintop lecturing all the rest of us. But the unfortunate reality is that to earn market returns over time, you got to be in the game. You have to remain in the market market returns do not come like clockwork but rather in spurts when you least expect it and you've certainly experienced this firsthand over the past few weeks if you go back to uh, 1970 and invested a thousand dollars in the S&P and you missed just the 25 best days over what 49 years okay Uh, the thousand if you'd stayed with it year in year out would have returned 138,908 dollars That's nice. But if you just missed those 25 best days, 32,763. That's not even one month in in 19 years. In What what am I saying? 49 years. (laughs) So market timing requires not one but two decisions, when to bail and when to get back in. So the key here is to stay with the program. Thank you very much for listening. Please uh, persevere. Do not bail on this stuff. This is Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group saying thank you for listening, and we'll be back next Saturday at 9 on money management. Be sure and listen to Opus 111's Mike Mail every Saturday morning on 920 AM KXLY in Spokane. Stream the show on KXLY920.com or subscribe to this podcast, and we'll bring the latest episode to you. Securities offered through KMS Financial Services.